It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And my, how there is always more to learn. We thought the party conferences might tell us more about where each party is on Brexit. Uh, No one expected the whole scene to get blown apart by a Supreme Court ruling that Boris Johnson's suspension of Parliament is unlawful. So on this episode, I turned to two of the UK to Changing Europe's top wonks to explain all. Professor Tim Bale is Deputy Director of UK and a Changing Europe and also Director of the Mile End Institute at Queen Mary University London. Um, that is a title and a half. This is his first appearance on the podcast. Uh, in future appearances, I think we'll just stick to the Deputy Director bit. And back again this week was Professor Meg Russell, Director of the Constitution Unit at University College London and a senior fellow at UK in a changing Europe. And just to mention, we've got two more of the UK in a changing Europe's top team joining me and a couple of excellent guests. I've seen the guest list today and I can uh, assure you they are super informed and super interesting at uh, Podcast Live on October the 5th in central London. Google it, follow Podcast Live on Twitter uh, and you'll find all the ticket details there. And uh, it will be there that we'll do the live finale to this week's competition. Details of that at the end of this podcast. First, here's the chat. And I started, well, started at the beginning by asking the experts about that Supreme Court ruling. Here we go. What the hell happened yesterday? (laughs) Well, I think uh, there are different interpretations of this, as is the nature with constitutions. Um, But I think basically the Supreme Court um, took quite a brave step, but nonetheless a step which fundamentally um, reinforced and reaffirmed the core principles of our existing constitution. I don't think it was a revolution of any kind. I think what the judges did... Uh, was protect Parliament's right to be central to British politics and the British Constitution and to prevent a situation whereby the executive had used an outdated ancient power to shut down Parliament and avoid scrutiny. It's an interesting example, I think, of um, that adage sometimes, which which is a conservative adage, actually, I believe. Um, Sometimes everything must change in order for everything to stay the same. Can a court be brave? I mean, surely a court just you know, interprets the law and, you know, there's nothing brave about that, is there? Yeah, that's a fair comment. I mean, I suppose, what do I mean by that? Um, The judges have, unfortunately and very inappropriately, I think, at other stages in this long Brexit process, been subject to attack. So Mm. you had those Daily Mail headlines, enemies of the people and so on. So at the very least, it's brave because the individuals know that they may unleash anger amongst a certain section of political and public opinion. Um, But you're quite right. They're doing their professional job. um, And I'm sure they believe that that was what they had to do. And it's it's very interesting that at the beginning of this process, 
Um, quite a lot of people were sceptical that there was a legal case here. Um, the legal community were quite divided on whether um, it was what they refer to as justiciable, e even something that the judges can rule on, and if it is justiciable, whether it um, was really a, a legal action. And I think it's, well, it's interesting because um, what they have done is strengthen, in a sense, the centrality of Parliament in our Constitution. And what they've done is reinforce something that I have spent a lot of time um, trying to convince people is the case, and a lot of my research on Parliament has pointed in this direction, that although lots of people like to believe that we have an all-powerful executive in Britain and a weak Parliament, it is the other way around. The executive gets its power from Parliament, the executive may be often very powerful, but that's on the basis of having a majority in the House of Commons that is prepared to go along with the policy that the governing party pursues. If you don't have that, which we don't have mm, at the moment, yeah. we're in a minority government situation, there is no reason at all to think that the executive is powerful. And if the executive and parliament clash, it is parliament that must prevail. And um, also, implicitly, there's a reminder to everybody um, who reads the judgment and the way it's framed that uh, we don't live in a presidential system uh, that Boris Johnson uh, doesn't get as it were the personal blame for this it's the government's actions which are unlawful which is a reminder that we still have cabinet government supposedly he is still only primus inter pares it's not all about Johnson although maybe politically it's all about Johnson but actually constitutionally it is about the government as a whole I mean I don't know how you got on this podcast, Tim. Everyone knows Boris Johnson's not in charge. It's Dominic Cummings. He's in charge, right? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I He's I think, not even elected at all. Well, I think one of the interesting things yesterday, I mean, it was about as bad as it possibly could be for Boris Johnson, but it was very clear that the court did not want to get into the motivations. Um, although everybody claims to know what the motivation was, that wasn't something that they got into. They simply said that the effect... Uh, of the uh, advice uh, was unlawful. Um, why that advice was given, you know, in the dark recesses of Dominic Cummings' mind, uh, wasn't something that the court actually uh, decided to discuss. Except I think they, they established that the motivation cannot simply have been to have a Queen's speech because it does not take five weeks to prepare to have a Queen's speech. <laughs> no, that's that's right. In other words, they, they, they sort of said there's no other plausible explanation but they didn't go any further than that. Um, a Queen's speech which inevitably won't pass Parliament anyway because they haven't got a majority, right? So that's a bit weird. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it is unlikely, uh, given you know that he's not only now in a minority government, he's in a minority plus, if yeah. you like, government. So, uh, yes, it, it is unlikely. But, I mean, the Queen's speech anyway was never really intended, was it, to, to get any legislation through. It's simply you know a shop window for for the uh, government's uh, and the Conservative Party's uh, next election campaign. Well, we are in a bizarre situation, of course, where when we had, uh, before Parliament was prorogued, two attempts by the Prime Minister to get MPs to vote for a general election, which they refused to do. Um, I wonder whether he might actually quite like them to defeat his Queen's speech. He would like them to defeat him in a vote of no confidence in order that he can get out of this nightmare of having to explain his Brexit policy and move into election campaign mode, which yeah. is where he'd like to be. Yeah, and of course previously the, the, a defeat on the Queen's speech would have, I think, automatically meant an election. It would have been treated as a confidence uh, um, 
motion uh, and you know had it not got through then uh, we would have moved to an election but of course under the fixed term parliament act uh, Ooh, that he's done it he said the swear happen. words the fixed term parliament act <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it is in it is interesting, you know, that uh, you know we are in this kind of deadlocked situation, and the opposition clearly don't want uh, an election until they've made absolutely sure that we're not going to leave without a deal. So they are going to leave Boris Johnson, as it were, twisting in the wind, stewing in his own juices, whatever you want to uh, say, uh, until that happens. So they've kind of got him where they want him, actually, at the moment. I suspect. And aside from the politics, we know that it's probably not a good idea to leave without a deal because there's an excellent UK in a changing Europe report called No Deal... I can't remember the subtitle. Come on, Tim, you're, you're Deputy Director oh, of UK in a changing Europe that's now. That's all you need to know. It's our Im- No Deal report. You can download it uh, from our website. Uh, it's written by experts. It covers you know, a, a, a number of fields, a number of consequences that No Deal would have. It tries to give balance, authoritative information, and uh, it's not good news. I mean, basically, across all of those sectors, uh, there would be considerable disruption, uh, both in the short and the medium term. And as we know, most economic forecasters think that there would be you know, a considerable loss of GDP over time as well. I mean, just to get, get sidetracked slightly on no deal, um, it is a very good report. It's very straightforward, nice and simple. Even I can understand it. You can listen to a podcast about it if you really want, whatever, two episodes ago. Um, I was talking to a person last week who happens to be a massive Tory, might stand for the next election. And I said, oh, yeah, no deal's bad, isn't it? And she said, no. I said, well, it is, look, I mean, if you really want, I can call up this amazing report on my phone and show you. And she went, no, it's fine. What does that say about where we are politically? That You know... As you say, the report is pretty authoritative, and yet there are, is a huge chunk of, of politics, of voters, of, of you know the, the population who just won't believe it. Well, I mean, I think this gets us into what uh, Matthew Dancona, um, who wrote a book on this, calls post-truth politics, in the sense that you know fact-based analysis um, has become, if you like, displaced or at least downgraded in favour of. You know people's feelings uh, and opinions uh, about and the same subjects. Yes, and identities. That, that's quite right. And and in, in an era of post-truth politics, uh, although you know organisations like UK and Changing Europe and, and all sorts of fact-checking uh, organisations, I think have a duty to place before the public what they see as objective um, treatment uh, of particular issues. You know that's no guarantee that, of course, the public are, are going to listen to it. And in particular, when we are in such a polarised environment where people have, if you like, made up their minds, um, it's true that, that people are rather resistant to, to being shown the evidence and, and being convinced and, and, and having their mind changed by that evidence. I think you know, that's what a lot of the polling shows, that, that people haven't actually changed I their mind I think there is a terrible much. risk of getting into a situation I mean, along all of these lines where there's a section of the population that believes there is a kind of grand conspiracy against it uh, and that any experts, any judges, any parliamentarians um, who take a different point of view have got evil motives mm. and simply should not be trusted yeah. and then yeah. you're, they, they do not wish then to assess any kind of facts or evidence that mm. are put in front of them mm. because they think it's all a con. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that same massive Tory, and I don't think she's typical of all Conservatives, says there's going to be a big global Ebola pandemic and we're all going to die anyway. So it doesn't really matter about No Deal. 
Uh, I was like, well, you know, it's a point of view, isn't it? Hi, Arnon here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk, and sign up for our fantastic newsletter. Not only the latest on Brexit, but the latest on the best football team in the world. Every two weeks, free, in your inbox. Do it now. There is the question then of what Parliament is going to do, obviously, with yeah. the, the days that it's got. Um, it's not really going to change anything fundamentally, I think, about Brexit. But what it is going to do, and this comes back to Meg's point, is, is force Boris Johnson and forces ministers to front up in the House of Commons in a way that they clearly you know, wanted to avoid doing uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks. So you know, that, I guess, will be the, the major uh, impact of, uh, of this judgment, at least in the short term. In other words, it will, you know, it will mean that there will be more scrutiny, there will be more accountability. It could be, of course, that the Commons uses this time as well to, you know, um, perhaps try and, uh, you know, plug any loophole holes if if you plug loopholes um, in in the Ben Act, Ooh. if there if there are any, uh, to prevent Boris Johnson, you know. Um, you know, finding some other way of leaving without a deal. That's that's one possibility that they might do with the time. There is legislation, of course, which, yes, you know, had fallen, Act, for example, but, yeah. uh, you know, is now there. I, I will have to actually defer to Meg as to whether they're, even with, you know, the, the time available, that that legislation actually would have time to, to progress. I doubt it, but perhaps Meg knows better. I think it probably would have time, but the difficulty is that there are some fundamental disagreements over it. There are some of that legislation they were frightened to bring back because they were frightened of being, it being um, amended in ways that they didn't want. But on the other hand, at least officially that legislation is needed in order for Brexit to happen. So, I mean, you know, one thing that comes out of this, you already mentioned, the likelihood of a, of a, of a Brexit on the 31st of October, I think, you know, that was already relatively low and it's becoming lower all of the time. So whether the legislation goes through, therefore, doesn't necessarily matter that much. But I, I think in terms of what Parliament will do, there's another kind of caricatured view. I mentioned the caricature that, Parliament, that you know, the government is powerful and Parliament is weak. The other caricature is that what parliament does is it legislates actually yeah it does legislate but i think the things that it will be doing in the next few weeks um which are much more which are the the important things are Mm. the non-legislative things so it's simply asking ministers questions on the floor of the house calling them for urgent questions forcing them to make statements getting them to appear in front of select committees that's where some of the really forensic and really challenging questioning in the House of Commons happens. So they're definitely going to want to be questioning Michael Gove, who's responsible for the no deal strategy, on, you know, what about what the BMA are saying about the risk to medicines? What about what the British Retail Consortium are saying about the risk to food supplies, etc.? You know, they were avoiding all of that scrutiny. They'll be wanting to ask Boris Johnson about what really is going on in these negotiations. What really is your alternative to the backstop and so on? None of that is about passing bills. It's not necessarily even about trying to force defeats. It's just getting the government to explain what its policy is, what its strategy is on the record and seeing whether it stands up to scrutiny. And I think MPs probably have quite a strong suspicion that it won't stand up to scrutiny, which is why Labour wants to keep Johnson in that position for as long as possible, because the more he and his ministers fall apart on the floor of the House of Commons and in answering questions in committees, the worse their general election prospects look. And of course, Parliament can also use its majority 
um, to try and uh, wheedle out of government all sorts of documents that the government doesn't want <laughs> to be released. You know, it can do that by conventional means, or it can use things like the humble address system uh, in order uh, to, to uh, you know, flush out um, stuff that the government would rather keep um, private. I don't think we've seen the so-called non-papers. That the oh, government the has, you can't see um, a non-paper because it's not to, a paper, is it? <laughs> has delivered to to the EU twenty seven as part of its negotiations. Whether Parliament will be able to actually see those, I think, will be very interesting. And we haven't seen the non-papers, the WhatsApp messages, and all of that that Parliament demanded to to get in terms of the internal communications in Number Ten about the prorogation. That was a humble address, and the government just ignored it. Well, now Parliament's come back. They're going to be straight back onto that, I think. And there's a possibility of some kind of contempt motion because of that, because the government hasn't done what Parliament asked. Mm. Oh, hang on. Right. Uh, contempt motion. Obviously, Dominic Cummings has already been found to be contempt in Parliament and he's now running the country. So does it really matter if there's a contempt? What does that mean? Does that mean, are we, I mean, back to the same question I asked you last time, I suppose, Meg, is Boris Johnson going to jail? Is that <laughs> what happens if there's a contempt motion? No. There is a problem with contempt with respect to, with Dominic Cummings, it was respect to being a, a select committee witness. And there's been a lot of argument in recent years about the extent to which the select committees don't really have in, at the end of the day, the teeth that they need mm. to force people to appear in front of them if they refuse. Mm. If you apply contempt to parliamentarians, it does have teeth. Mm. Uh, because people who are non-parliamentarians, parliament doesn't really have any any tools at its disposal to act against them to punish them but parliamentarians can be punished you know they can be suspended from the house of commons they can even be barred from standing for the house of commons can they be put in the cell that's underneath big ben i'm not sure is that really a thing i mean you know theoretically i'm not sure that may or may not exist in real life Um, i don't think it's a serious prospect um, Which, you know, to these days, anything could happen. I sure. mean, one, of, one of the difficulties, I think, in this situation, and you know, Dominic Cummings is a is, is a key um, name to mention here, is that so many of these things that are going on uh, in normal times would be absolutely shocking and shaming, and people would be resigning. And what we see is an administration here where they seem determined to brazen it out, and they're rather taking pride in brazening it out. And this goes to this thing about. Um, the divide between those who think that there's a grand elite conspiracy and wanting to stoke up that feeling among the public for electoral purposes, Mm. which I think is dark and dangerous. Um, There was a fascinating piece um, in The Times this week by Danny Finkelstein, um, who is a conservative, um, saying that this is actually a calamity for the conservatives. You know, the conservatives have always been the keepers of tradition the keepers of convention, the defenders of our British constitution and British values, and for them to trash that is essentially to destroy the Conservative Party. And what was very interesting uh, on Wednesday morning was uh, obviously some of the headlines in the Brexit supporting uh, newspapers were you know, very critical of the court, uh, very critical of, uh, of judges, you know, claiming you know, they were kind of part or at least implying they were part of some sort of Remainer conspiracy. But we also had uh, a leak from the, the cabinet conversations. It was a, a conference call. Um, mm, yeah. uh, and we had uh, uh, the uh, um, leader of the House apparently um, telling his colleagues uh, that this was a constitutional coup. 
Now that's exactly the kind of you know dark politics in a way that, that that Meg is talking about. That's you know that's the leader of the House of Commons, someone who, in his manner, his style, or whatever you know, claims to embody all that's best in British traditions. Basically, and wants un- to be a great parliamentarian. Yeah, basically, undermining the Supreme Court, and indeed, you know, you can argue the Constitution of this country by you know casting doubt on on the motives uh, of of the Supreme Court. So, I think Court. one of the most interesting, there's a really interesting kind of nub of this battle now, and I'd be interested to know what Tim thinks about this as somebody who's written how many books about the Conservative Party? Too many. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, battle within the Conservative Party on this stuff now between people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, Dominic Cummings who may or may not be a member of the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson who are prepared to try this kind of scorched earth strategy Mm. and people like um, Danny Finkelstein and various others some of whom have actually now been thrown out of the party by Mm. Johnson Mm. um, who want them to be the party of moderation, tradition, respect for the rule of law, belief in parliament etc etc. The the most kind of dangerous way of getting rid of Boris Johnson, the kind of fundamental challenge to Boris Johnson, would come from within the Conservative Party itself. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, but I, I think, you know, unfortunately, in some ways, that that battle within the Parliamentary Conservative Party is still latent rather than manifest. Uh, I think there is quite a lot of unhappiness, clearly, about what Boris Johnson is doing, both from a kind of... Um, uh, constitutional point of view and uh, political or electoral um, point of view um, but you know I think at the moment many Conservative MPs most Conservative MPs are in the if we don't hang together we'll hang separately uh, frame of mind and just hope somehow against hope that Boris Johnson is being is going to be able to do a deal at the last minute and and get this through and this will quote unquote be over I think Meg is right though there is a, a you know a large degree of unhappiness about this and we haven't yet I think got to the stage that we've got to in the Republican Party for example in the USA where you know Republican senators and and Republican uh, you know people in the house just you know seem to have given up completely on the idea Mm. that uh, you know President Trump might be doing something wrong and they are just you know they are just completely attached to him and they're not going to be able to separate themselves um, from him. There was him. again a very good piece by Jonathan Friedland in the, in the, I think in the Observer a week or so ago drawing this parallel between the Republicans and the Conservative Party and saying really the Republicans gave up and threw their lot in with Trump. Will the Conservatives in the UK do the same? Mm. And I think you know the, the Parliamentary Conservative Party better than me. You know, I wonder whether... It, particularly in terms of going into an election, you know, will the majority of the Conservative Parliamentary Party be prepared to go into an election behind Johnson fighting a what he wants to fight, it seems, a people versus parliament mm. election, which I think is fundamentally dangerous and destructive and fundamentally unconservative, mm. actually. And I'm sure lots of people feel that, but will they stand up for that? Well, let's just tie that into... Uh, you've written a book about... Uh, party membership. Yes, thank you very much. It's called so, Foot Soldiers, yes. uh, Political Party Membership in the 21st Century. But doesn't that speak to Meg's point that the parliamentary party might not like it, but they are beholden to the members more than ever? Yeah, I mean, one of the, the fascinating paradoxes really about British politics over the last 10, 20 years is that the party membership that supposedly has the least influence on party <laughs> policy, in other words, the Conservative Party membership, 
um, could claim to have had the most effect actually on shifting their party um, gradually towards this, what some people see as a, um, you know, a pretty extreme form um, of uh, Euroscepticism. Uh, and indeed Brexit, uh, and they've done that by, over the years, exercising one of the few rights that they do have, which is selecting um, parliamentary candidates and, of course, picking the leader. Um, over time, you know, they've picked people who are very Eurosceptic, so therefore, you know, we've seen a sort of generational replacement within the Conservative Party of kind of moderate, you know, reasonably kind of Euro-realist or Euro-friendly MPs with you know, some some real headbangers, as David Cameron would have called them. Mm. Uh, and we have, of course, now seen them elect Boris Johnson, who, who clearly committed himself to, you know, do or die um, Brexit on the 31st of October. So they, they, they have had uh, an impact. Uh, and it's not just by selection. It's also, I think, by just sort of whispering words in the ear, you know, uh, every weekend when uh, MPs are going down to their constituency and doing events, you know, they're, they're picking up what their members are saying. And it's very, very Eurosceptic and very, very pro-Brexit. And I think, you know, it, it does make MPs rather afraid of actually coming out and, and, and mm. saying anything uh, that uh, goes against, you know, what is now obviously the party line. And the members knew what they were getting when they elected Boris Johnson. I mean, clearly they saw all his um, advantages and uh, pluses, but they knew that there were negatives. I mean, nobody can argue. It's not a party political point to say that Boris Johnson comes with baggage. No, no, Um, because he was offering what they wanted on on Brexit. Well, there was that poll, wasn't there? It may even have been your poll. I don't know, Tim. Um, Saying that I think it was two thirds of Conservative Party members voted for the Brexit Party in the European elections. Yeah, something something like that. I mean, what what's been interesting about um, looking at the the membership over the you know the, the the medium term, if you like, we first started surveying them in in twenty thirteen actually, and then 2015, 2017, is that um, and this is a sort of little known fact when we um, polled them in in twenty fifteen when David Cameron was still the Prime Minister. We knew we were going to have an in-out referendum. Uh, he hadn't yet conducted the negotiation with Brussels, remember that, that he was going to do. <laughs> Two-thirds of members told us that they would suspend their judgment on how to vote in the in-out referendum until they saw what David Cameron had come back with um, from Brussels. And we are now in the situation where two-thirds of, of, of Conservative Party members said they want to leave without a deal. And that's a huge change over time. It's an edit. Someone said something boring or illegal. Maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson. You'll never know. We are deep in conference season, uh, attended by party members. Uh, I mean, broadly, right, I confess I've not got around to reading your book yet. I don't understand these people who read books really quickly. If you like, have you read the Cameron book? Have you, either of you read the Cameron book? Let you into a secret. They don't actually read them. They just read the conclusion and they read the introduction and they skip the rest or skim the rest and, and hey presto, they've read it. Have either of you read the Cameron book? No. No. Of course not. It's massive and it only came out last week and everyone's like talking about stuff in it. They can't really have read it all, can they? There have been plenty of extracts in the newspapers to be going on. Well, yeah, but yeah. that doesn't, I mean, what, do you read the extracts and then say, yeah, I read, I've read the Cameron book? And just I think suspect you can get away quite with that. a lot of people do. Actually, yeah, okay, yeah. fair yeah. enough. But I'm assuming that the, the conclusion of your book is that people who join political parties and even more so people who go to party conferences are weirdos. Uh, yeah, we don't put it quite like that, but I mean, they are unusual. They're certainly unusual. That's right. I mean, only sort of two, three percent of people belong to political parties at uh, at any one time. Uh, they're also unusual 
in in a couple of other respects. So that clearly they're you know they're they're pretty ideological. That doesn't mean they're all sort of head banging zealots, but um, you know it does mean that they they take if you like a, a you know a, a much bigger interest in politics and they have much more fixed uh, views uh, about politics. Um, so that's true, and they also have a higher sense of you know to use the jargon efficacy. In other words, they believe that what they do can make a difference and that's one of the oh, reasons that nice. they jo- well it is i mean it, you know it, we we can knock party members and say they're weird but actually they are you know to, to coin a cliche the lifeblood of our, our democracy in a way um you know without them parties would be in in a lot of trouble they wouldn't um have uh, the the campaign resources that they have they wouldn't have the financial resources that they have they wouldn't have the pool of candidates that they can draw on uh, and in, in some ways, you know, they would just begin to float free and become vehicles for ambitious politicians. Now, they are vehicles for ambitious politicians anyway. But I mean, without party members, those those, those parties would, you know, have no anchor, as it were, to particular principles which differentiate them from other parties. And that differentiation is extremely important when we're talking about representative democracy. The Brexit Party, I believe, is is experimenting with a, a member-free model. Yeah. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I mean, the Brexit Party is a company um, which uh, you can sign up to be a registered supporter of. Um, and this gets Nigel Farage out of the, you know, the perennial problem that he had with UKIP's membership yeah. and its sort of intermediate, you know, governance structures, where they often, you know, wanted him to do stuff that he didn't want to do and wouldn't do stuff that he wanted them to do. So by forming a, a company rather than a kind of conventional political party, he gets himself out of uh, that particular. But that's uh, interesting, problem. isn't it? That this newest party that we have. Um, is getting rid of that old model precisely because the leaders see some of the dangers, some of the downsides of being constrained by members. And I think that there are, we haven't mentioned the Labour Party really here yet. And just just for the record, I did write a book on the Labour Party and its organisation many, many moons ago. Um, And in particular, things like the reform of um, the selection process for parliamentary candidates and the reform of the election process for the party leader. And we've now got to a situation where, of course, we have a party leader um, in Jeremy Corbyn who was selected by the members and supporters of the party but never enjoyed the support of the parliamentary party. And that has been a huge, huge problem ever since he became the leader of the party. And in a way, I would say now, um, looking back, you can see that that was part of the disempowering of parliament because it disconnects Mm. the leader of the party from the parliamentary party who... If the system is functioning properly, they should be all singing from the same hymn sheet. They should be a team. And you get to the point where you had Corbyn just after the referendum. The parliamentary party wanted to remove him as leader and they found that they couldn't. And they, they we talk about Boris Johnson being trapped as prime minister. The parliamentary party have been trapped uh, on the Labour side with Corbyn as leader, which means that the system just isn't functioning as it should. Yeah. One thing about the Labour Party conference, you know, from being down there that, uh, you know, really um, was very striking was how the Supreme Court uh, decision saved the Labour Party conference because the atmosphere um, before the, the decision on Tuesday was totally poisonous. I mean, I, I was sitting having a cup of tea in the, in the morning um, next to a couple of um, delegates who were, you know, debating whether they were going to just walk out of Tom Watson's <laughs> speech or actually start singing "Old Jeremy Corbyn" during it. So that was a serious debate they were having. Um, and I, I mean, 
I, I don't know, but I think that's probably been avoided. You know, the, 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 this the is a party on the brink of power. Yeah, I mean, the the mood whoa, just whoa, whoa. T- what the mood just totally switched. You know, at, at ten thirty, the mood just totally switched around, and it was all about Boris Johnson. You know, should resign, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, you know, Lady Hale, has which done... is kind of where they should have been. I mean, that's my point. Obviously, yeah. I, obviously, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm joking there. <laughs> yeah. On the brink, I mean, of a general election, which is the time when when you would expect parties to be maximally united mm, mm. and i mean that speaks to um you know did labor have a good conference yes thanks to lady hale got out, got out of jail there um the tories conference what's the mood at the tory party conference going to be yeah. give, given this you know this this huge divide between the cummings people and the traditional conservatives mm, mm. is that going to be as nasty i mean the, the nature of the conference is very different isn't yeah. it in that you don't have these big votes on no. the floor no. so it's not as visible no. but i would imagine on the fringe yeah. and in the bars and so on there might be quite a lot of nastiness and unhappiness at the conservative party. well i mean i should think there are um, clearly you know some parliamentary people and some staffers at cchq who are quite worried you know both for principled reasons and perhaps for electoral reasons about you know the direction that the, the leadership is taking it but i think as far as the delegates are concerned um, you know, ordinary party members. I think they'll be fully behind Boris. Uh, you know, and and it will be a, a rally for Boris and a, a Johnson and a, and a rally for Brexit. Really, it'll be jubilant. I mean, every other Tory conference in recent years, it's all been about the Boris Johnson appearance when he hasn't been prime minister. Now, I mean, they all used to queue up to go and see him. Now he's going to be given the main speech. Yeah, they basically the, the membership were all about Johnson for years, weren't yeah, they? I mean, I, they used to go nuts when he'd turn up. He'd have yeah, people round him. Yeah, you know, there'd be a massive yeah. scrum round but him. But I, I think the sort of doubts that Meg is is pointing to, you know, will bubble up um, in, in the fringe events, which, of course, you know, are, are quite an important part of, of conference. They're not the thing that people necessarily see, you know, on the news. And, and as you say, I think that will be all adulation for Boris Johnson. Um, but I, I think, you know, in, in fringe events where people are prepared to talk, you know, a little more unguardedly there are bound to be some doubts raised about the the way things are going but I, I think that will be a minority view so I think we can all agree when it comes to conference season uh, Lib Dem smashed it Lib Dem's clear winners yeah I mean I was down in Bournemouth as well because I go to too many of these party conferences um I mean, I think, again, there there were a few sort of niggles, a few doubts about whether this revoke Article 50 mm. was a good that idea. That was a brave yeah. decision. So. Um, but I think um, in the main, and you saw this in the voting for it, actually, um, you know, most um, party members uh, and indeed, I think probably most MPs and, and staffers think that that was the right thing to do. Um, you know, uh, I think they think it was, a, you know, great for the, the Lib Dems brand. Um, you know, it'll help them pick up uh, seats they hope from the Conservatives it will certainly differentiate them from, from the Labour Party uh, uh, and it and in the end it won't have any practical consequences <laughs> in the sense that the Lib Dems aren't going to get it well he, he said it's famous well. last words are unlikely to, to form a majority government and therefore probably won't be revoking There's an interesting 50. question though isn't there as to whether that tactic has ironically opened up the centre ground mm. for Jeremy Corbyn yeah. And the decision at Labour's conference not to go all out for Remain, they're hoping to get the votes of the moderates, in effect. Yeah, if there are any moderates on Brexit. And of yes, course, you know, one exactly. thing that John Curtis, you know, another senior fellow of UK and Changing Europe would say is one of the problems with Jeremy Corbyn's strategy is, you know, well, uh, you know, the fact that there's been this polarisation on Brexit, does that mean that there is space 
uh, for a more, uh, as it were, uh, you know, middle position, which is Jeremy mm. Corbyn's position, or, you know, does actually, it's not space, it's just a damn great crater in the middle. <laughs> I just need to come back to the fact you said Lib Dems are not going to win a majority. So therefore you've outed yourself as not one of the six UK and a changing Europe <laughs> experts who thinks the Lib Dems are going to win a majority. So that's two down. We've got 98 people to work through and find out who are these six experts who think the Lib Dems are going to win a majority according to the Brexit policy panel. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Tim, you're, you're new. Uh, what would you recommend to understand Brexit? Well... I'm going to go with something that I've mentioned in the podcast, uh, and it is the book by Matthew Dancona, which is called Post-Truth Politics. It was published in 2017, um, but I think if you read that, and it's a very short book, uh, it helps you understand the environment and the context in which we're talking about um, Brexit, and maybe even explains to some extent why we voted the way we did in 2016, and why we haven't been able to, and maybe won't be able to put this issue to bed for a very long time. Meg, what have you got this week? Well, I mentioned a couple of things in the podcast as well, which are relatively easily accessible and very short. The excellent articles that we've seen in the last couple of weeks from Jonathan Friedland in The Observer and um, Danny Finkelstein in The Times, though of course the Finkelstein one would be behind a paywall for many people. Um, This is an all-academic Uh, edition of the podcast Um, and so I'm going to recommend something else that I read this week which is very academic it's an academic article by a woman called Nadia Urbinati who writes about the nature of democracy Um, and it's called The Political Theory of Populism which appeared in the Mm. annual review of political science I just happened to read that this week during the period that we were waiting for the Supreme Court ruling And what she does there, if people can access it, because, again, it would be behind a different kind of paywall for many people, academics can get it easily through their libraries, is she sets out very crisply and clearly the nature of populism, what populism is, that it's a movement which pits the people as a mass, supposedly a sort of coherent mass, um, against the elites. And she goes through the strategies um, that populists use, particularly when they're in power. Um, And she explains how populists not only set up this dichotomy between ordinary people and elites, which I think we've already talked about today, um, but also how they attack the conventional institutions which provide checks and balances in our constitutions. And given what's been going on, with respect to both Parliament and the courts this week, it had a kind of eerie resonance, I thought, because this was written by somebody who doesn't live in the UK. She wasn't writing about the UK. It was published at the end of 2018, and it read to me like the Dominic Cummings playbook, (laughs) uh, which I find quite terrifying, actually. So there you go, politics, constitution, events this week have been pretty massive, it's fair to say, and we've had a lot of weeks where we've been talking about massive events, but this one feels like it's fulfilled its promise. All the more reason to come to Podcast Live on October the 5th for the next instalment, and you can take part in the latest competition if you're in the audience there. You can take part in the competition if you're not in the audience by emailing your answer to uk and eu at kcl.ac.uk the question is how old is anand menon 
the director of UK Day Changing Europe, had a birthday just the other day. Uh, he's always on the telly, so you can know what he looks like. How old do you think he is? Send in your guess to UK and EU at kcl.ac.uk and uh, closest to the right answer wins a Brexit breakdown mug, which are in uh, great demand. Not many people have got one yet, but one man has. He is called Clark Sargent. He was right. He won last week's competition and correctly identified the number of urinating statues in Brussels. Yes, that was last week's question. Uh, he'll get a mug in the post in the next few days. Um, if you want to get in touch, so I've given you the email address to get in touch with your answers. If you want to get in touch about anything else, you can go to that email address. You can get UK and a Changing Europe on Facebook or on Twitter at UK and EU. And you can get me on Twitter. I am at Political Yeti. The music has again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Bandango Orchestra. And this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a Changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back next time for Podcast Live with an actual audience. Look forward to it and hopefully see you there. Goodbye. Goodbye.